Tomorrow is July 4th, and we celebrate July 4th with lots of barbecue and setting things on fire to remember when we declared independence from England 240 years ago. Is that right? 1776. Four years after they had declared independence from England in 1780, things were not looking so hot. They had lost a lot of significant battles. The revolutionaries had pretty much lost the South, the entire South, to England. And the commander-in-chief of West Point, a man named Benedict Arnold, had a grand plan to betray America. Families were divided. You had loyalist fathers and you had revolutionary sons. They were pitted against each other and a lot of people were wondering, what have we gotten ourselves into? Is this worth it? Why are we doing this? In the Christian life, if you have not already had a time like that, you probably will. There will be a time when you are just feeling attacked on all sides, when it is hard and you are tired and you are worn out and you feel like you've just lost all of these battles and you're going to go, is this worth it? Why am I doing this? I'm going to just be really honest with you. A couple of weeks ago, it had just been, we'd had a couple of hard weeks. I was tired. I was worn out. And I kind of went, God, it has been 2,000 years since Jesus has been here. 2,000 years. It had been about the same amount of time from the time Abraham was called to when Jesus came. It's been that long since Jesus died and resurrected and went to heaven. Am I really sure about this? Is this really right? Because 2,000 years is a really long time. Am I really absolutely sure that I am doing the right thing in following Christ? The Philippian church was a group of amazing believers. They were faithful in hard times. They were generous when they were in the midst of their own poverty. And they wrote Paul because they were tired and they were worn out and they needed some encouragement. They had been under a lot of financial pressure. They were, being, um, they were starting to get attacked by the community and they were starting to have to deal with some internal issues, some heresies that were coming up. They were just attacked on all sides, and they were kind of going, is this worth it? How do I keep going? What do we do now? And that is what we have, are Paul's words, his answer to that question. How do you keep going? How do we do this? Is it worth it? And if you will open with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul's answer, what do we do now? Therefore, my beloved, 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, in light of, remember Jason's sermon last week, what Christ has done for you, that whole beautiful passage of have this mind among, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count in quality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, etc., etc., etc. All of these things that Christ did for you. And by the way, most scholars think that was him. And I'm very disappointed that Jason did not sing and dance that passage for us last week. <laughs> in light of what Christ did for you, and in light of the example he gave to you, to us. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. And here's what I love about Paul. There are times when Paul gets all up in arms and he's the fiery preacher and that's what we need. But the Philippian church was not at that place. They were at a place of saying, we're hurt, we're struggling, we're tired. And Paul responds with gentleness and love and encouragement. He says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, as you have been faithful, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. That's kind of a scary phrase. What does that mean, salvation? Because we know that Paul talks about all the time Salvation is by grace. It is something that God has done. It is not something that we have done. Our right relationship with God is not dependent on us. There is nothing that we can add to it. There is nothing we can do to make that right. That is all God, not us. So why here does he say, work out your own salvation? Because there's another aspect of salvation that Paul talks about. We might call it sanctification. We might call it spiritual formation. We might call it your Christian walk. It is the manifestation of that right relationship with God in our lives today. And what Paul is saying here is you work out, you take responsibility for that manifestation, for that experience. You're worn out and you're tired, but take responsibility for this. In fact, the Greek grammar that he uses, and I love grammar, I really do. The Greek grammar that he uses says, work out for yourself. You take charge of this. When you feel like life is completely out of control and you're worn out and you're tired and there's nothing in your life that you have control of. There actually is something in your life that you have control of all the time, and it is your spiritual transformation, your, your experience of God's life today. You actually can take control of that. You actually can be in charge of that. Jason's not in charge of it. He's a really, really good rector, but he's not in charge of my spiritual life. He's not in charge of my formation. He can help me, he can guide me, but he's not ultimately responsible and in charge of it. Just like Paul wasn't. In my absence, 
just as in my presence. I'm not with you guys. I can't be with you guys right now. You have to take responsibility for this. You have to stand up and do this. It's a scary thing. It's a hard thing. It's a daily thing. And how's it, how does he say to do it? With fear and trembling. This is a phrase that Paul uses a lot that describes our recognition of who we are and who God is. He talks about times with, in fear and trembling, I did God's work. He also talks about on the other side, when those who did not have godly fear, they went off their own path, did their own thing, and it did not go well for them. I want to read to you this passage from Exodus 19. Exodus chapter 19, and if you want to turn with me, you can, or you can just listen to this. Beginning in the 16th verse. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Could you imagine being there at a place where the entire mountain is trembling and on fire and smoking? And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. That is fear and trembling. That's God saying, I put you in this world, and I can take you out. This is our all-powerful creator, God. We need to take responsibility for our spiritual life, even in the midst of these hard times and adversity and scary times, because of who God is. All-powerful creator, God. But it's not just a scary thing. It's a comforting thing. Because he is all-powerful, creator God. And I am the dependent, created being. Completely dependent on him. How, how... How? How can I take control of my spiritual life when just yesterday I'm screaming and yelling at my kids and losing my temper with them, ironically enough, because they're screaming and yelling and losing their temper with each other? How can I do this impossible thing when 
I just feel like a failure. I can't even remember to bring the stinking stuff for the mission trip. I'm not even going on the mission trip. I can't even remember to bring this one little thing. I am constantly failing my family. I am constantly failing my friends. I had a friend who had a hard weekend, and did I even remember to just text or call her and say, hey, how are you doing? No, I'm a complete failure, thank you. How on earth do I do this very hard thing of my spiritual life, of manifesting this relationship with God in this life? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How can I do this impossible thing? Because it is God who does it. It is God's power. That creator God who made the mountain shake, he is the one who's actually working in my life. And how is he working specifically? Uh Uh-oh, my page turned when I was talking both to will and to work. That means he is working, he is giving me the desire. He is the one who's who's making me want this, who's making me say, yes, I want that experience of God, that full, abundant life now. Yes, I want something that's different from what I've had. Yes, I want something that's different from what the world has. He's the one who's making me want that, who's giving me that desire that's something bigger than me. And to work. That Greek word is actually the word that we get our um, energy from. He is the one who's giving me the energy, the ability, the capability to do this. I cannot do it on my own. I am the weak, dependent, created being, and that's good. Because when I recognize who God is and I recognize who I am, then I can do this. Because he is doing it through me. It's this very difficult thing. So we are, after we had all that rain for a while and had to get the kids out, and so we took the kids to Arbor Hills kind of this nature preserve-y type place. And they have some concrete trails, but they also have some dirt ones. And like I said, it had just been raining quite a bit. And my youngest, who just turned two this week, (laughs) ran off because she's the third and she's strong-willed and independent and gonna do what she wants to do. She just took off running into a mud path. And her feet, I mean, she's like up to her knees in this mud, and I'm up to my feet. And I go running after her while Chris is picking up some stuff over here, and I come back, and I bring her back. We're just covered in mud. And he said, what on earth happened? And I said, Gracie just ran through the squelchy mud. Squelchy? What kind of word is squelchy? Where did you get that word? I don't know. It's squelchy. It's just the squelchy mud. No, is it... Did you, is that a Jersey word? Because I'm originally from New Jersey. Is that a Jersey word? Do they say that in New Jersey? I, I don't know. It's squelchy. Is, is it a literary term? Because you like to read. Did you pick it up in a book? I, I don't know, babe. It's squelchy. I need a category here. I can't give you a category. Here's the thing about the divine and the human relationship. I can't give you a category. It's squelchy. It's a squelchy relationship. God 
gives me the desire and the ability. And yet, Paul says, work out your relationship. There is something that's working there together in a way that I can't categorize or explain. Some kind of pulley system and I don't see how all the gears are working. But that's what it is and it works together that way. This squelchy relationship. I, um, another thing I totally fail out is gardening. But let's pretend I have an awesome garden right now and that the rat and the bugs didn't demolish it. Let's just pretend. I work the soil. I weed. I, um, I fertilize. I water things. I squirt that organic insecticide like nobody's business. I am cultivating all of this, but I cannot make the plants grow. I cannot force that tomato plant to grow. That's not actually my job or my ability. That's what God does with the miracle of the sun and soil and all of these other things that are beyond my understanding of exactly how it works, even if I can explain it to you to some extent. God makes it grow, but I cultivate it. If I don't cultivate it, it's going to get overgrown by weeds and it's just going to get killed in the Texas heat and the insects and the rats. But there's a relationship of me cultivating what God has given us, what God is doing, what God is at work at. That's our squelchy, divine human relationship. Work out, cultivate your spiritual life even in the midst of hardness, even in the midst when you think you can't go on because life just stinks, because God is working. Why? For his good pleasure. And we're going to come back to that phrase in just a little bit. Now, if I am cultivating this and I'm working on my spiritual formation, my transformation, my um, sanctification, my Christian walk, whatever word you want to category you want to give that. What does it look like? How does this look in my life? I'm glad you asked because Paul talks about that in chapter or in verse 14. Do all things, every single thing, little things and big things, daily things and extraordinary things, in a house, with a mouse, on a train, in the rain. Do all things, absolutely no exceptions, without grumbling or questioning. I got to tell you, that's a little anticlimactic for me because I kind of want to pull out my golden lasso and do something Wonder Woman for my transformation, formation, spiritual life, whatever you want to call it. I want to do something magnificent. And Paul's idea of what my spiritual life is, is do all things without grumbling or questioning. Thanks, Paul. This word grumbling has the idea of murmuring under my breath. Raise your hand if you are currently or have ever been a teenager. <laughs> you know exactly what this word means. The word questioning has this idea of having all of your logical reasons of why you shouldn't have to do this. Raise your hand if you have ever been or are a teenager. I guess so. 
you know exactly what this means, logically presented of why I do not have to do this. You guys, I am queen of this verse still. Last Thursday, I told you things had been kind of rough. We'd had, and I don't mean rough like, you know, we were in prison for our faith or something. Let's be honest. It was not persecution. It was just, you know, kind of a stretch of a hard time. And I was tired and worn out. And then, you know, I go out in my garden and see the stupid rat eating my stupid plants and put the kids in for their nap time, or as we like to call it, confined to your room time, where we have a strict don't ask, don't tell policy for two hours. <laughs> while mama finds some chocolate. And I'm slamming around in the kitchen. I cannot believe this is stupid, Gordon. Can I even get one thing right? And I had just tried calling this person, and in fact, even can't even, if you, and she's not even gonna call me back. Why am I even doing this? Where is the chocolate? Did Chris eat my chocolate? Oh, there it is, okay. Just, just calm down. And I am just grumbling, and I am a mess, and I am complaining. I am this verse. Why does Paul say, in times of adverse, adversity, work out your salvation by not grumbling and complaining? Because this is our default, people. This is what we do. When the world is crumbling around us, we have to look out for ourselves. We have to take charge. We have to do this. And guess what? The Philippians were no different. He had just told them, do not look out for yourselves. Do not have that selfish ambition that the world has. Because they were probably struggling with it at this point in time in their lives. And grumbling and questioning is a symptom of that. Because grumbling and questioning is really saying... I don't deserve this. I shouldn't have to do this. And it's demoralizing to ourselves because it sucks us into this awful spiral and it's demoralizing to all the people around us who have to listen to me grumble and complain. Now, let me clarify. Paul here is not saying you have to put on your fake smile. You just have to be happy all the time. You can't take things to God because heaven knows we have enough examples in our Bible of people who take hard things to God. God is big and he can handle it. Jeremiah, David, every single, Paul himself took things to God. God, this is hard. Please, do I have to do it this way? This is hard and life stinks and, and just the world is falling apart. Paul is not saying stop doing that. And Paul is not saying don't go to your friends for encouragement and love and support and being willing to share with them. That's not what he's talking about either. In fact, the phrasing he used, grammar, he was bringing up, he was bringing to mind what the Israelites did in the wilderness. What they did right after God had saved them out of slavery, right after he did this big amazing thing of splitting the Red Sea. Has anybody seen an ocean being split? I have not, and I just cannot even imagine that. Right after he had made a mountain shake. And what do they do? They grumble and complain. I cannot believe you even brought us here, God. We would have been better off in Egypt. This is unbelievable. And we do not even have food to eat. Oh, so he magically makes food appear. Well, that food is not good enough. 
I want other food. Oh, so he gives them other food. And now we're thirsty. We don't have enough water. Oh, so he makes water come out of a rock. I cannot even believe this. I do not want to go on. And now there are big people over there and we cannot even fight them. That is what Paul is bringing to mind. And he's saying, guys, don't be like the Israelites because things did not turn out so well for them. Press on in hard times. Cultivate that which God has given you by not grumbling, by not complaining. Verse 15, with the result that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Those are terms that were used to describe sacrifice. Those were, that was how the sacrifices that the Israelites were to bring to God were to be. Blameless, pure, without blemish. And the result of us pursuing our Christian life without grumbling, without complaining, but instead choosing joy, choosing trust in God, is that we can be the sacrifices that God wants to use in this world, for this world. It's not always doing the extraordinary golden lasso Wonder Woman thing. It's doing the hard thing without grumbling and complaining and wondering why on earth is God doing this to me. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Those words, the crooked word is the one where we get our word scoliosis from. Something that is just crooked that should be straight. Twisted has this idea of it's misled and it's misleading. This is a generation that is misled and is misleading others. Not just Paul's generation, but the world around us. But we can be straight and true. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Among whom, not just like some kind of light bulb in the room, among whom you shine as the moon and the stars. Chris and I love to go camping. And one of the things that's just amazing to me is when the sun goes down and you have your campfire and you're getting ready for bed and it just is so dark. I mean, when that last ray of sunlight, sunlight disappears, it is so incredibly dark. And when you want to go brush your teeth and go to the bathroom and all that before bed, you have all these headlamps on just to find your way to the bathroom. It is really dark. And then you go to bed, and if you're like me, you wake up half a dozen times to pee at night. And you wake up, and you go out, and the campfire has died down, and you don't have your headlamp on. And those stars are brilliant. They are beautiful. They are shining so brightly. In fact, they are shining brightly enough that you can find your way to the bathroom or nearest tree without a headlamp. This is who we can be, guys. The world is crashing in among us. Our internal pressure, our own disappointment, our own struggles is crashing in us. But we can choose instead to be the type of people who shine as lights. 
in the Revolutionary War in 1780 when all of these struggles were going on and it looked like things were going to fall apart. And it wasn't like, okay, we're just gonna lose the war and England will stay in charge. I mean, these people would be hung for treason. It was gonna be bad. There was already a huge loss of life and it's not like England would say, okay, it's all fine now. It would have been really bad. It would have been really hard had they done this hard thing of, of setting out the revolutionary path and then lost. And that's what it looked like. And there was a man named Francis Marion in the South who started to uproot the strongholds in the South. And he did so not by getting up and fighting in the straight lines that everybody fought in at the time, but he did so with guerrilla warfare. He snuck in and they would shoot it down and grab it and then they'd run and go back to the swamps and hide in the swamps that they knew so well. He won the South through guerrilla warfare. This is our guerrilla warfare. When we choose to do this very subversive thing of going into work and going into our families and dealing with life without grumbling and complaining, but in fact choosing joy and trust in God and trust in Christ. Because that's what actually Philippians is about. The whole theme of Philippians is joy in the midst of adversity. When we do that very hard subversive thing, we shine as lights. This is God's good pleasure. He wants to use us. He wants for us to be part of his kingdom work. He wants for us to participate in this. Even when things are hard and impossible, he wants for us to shine as lights. That is his good pleasure. Paul saw himself as a sacrifice. He says in verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. The drink offering was the very last thing that you did in that sacrificial ceremony. And you poured it out next to the altar and it was just that last step. And I think Paul here is saying, even if that last thing happens, that I am killed for the faith, I don't count it as a loss. I count it as my service to Christ. Christ himself died as a sacrifice for us. We can choose to participate and to offer our lives and to be sacrifices. This is what we get to do. In 255 through 261 about, was when a plague in the Roman Empire had reached its peak. 5,000 were dying a day from this plague. The priests for the pagan religions could offer no explanation as to why their gods would be sending this awful thing to them or if their gods care. So the priests fled. The philosophers for philosophies such as Stoicism demeaned any sort of compassion or serving others. That was meaningless in their philosophy, so they fled. The scientists and the doctors had no explanation, had no cure, and the best thing they could say to do was just avoid contact with those who were sick. 
So they fled. And the people in general were just fleeing like crazy, which actually spread the disease more. But the Christians stayed. The Christians stayed, and first, they took care of their own. They took care of each other. They served each other. They nursed each other. They fed each other. They gave each other water. And then they began to take care of their unchristian neighbors. Those who had been abandoned by their families, because families would just run and leave the sick people there to die. And they would give them food, and they would give them water, and they would nurse them. And when, when they died, if they died, they would bury them for them. And when they revived, they would welcome them. The Christians did something very hard and very different. They chose, instead of looking out for themselves, to stay and serve one another and serve their community. And it made all the difference. Because those Christians actually build up immunities to the disease. But even more importantly, bigger than that, Tertullian wrote, people noticed. The Roman Empire that was intermittently persecuting the Christians at best and rejecting them at worst. Did I say that right? Maybe backwards. They noticed. They were saying on the streets, wow, look at how they love each other. Look at how they care for one another. Look at how they serve each other. One of the bishops at the time said, this is our opportunity to show God's love for the world and to show the hope that we have. When we choose to see those hard times as an opportunity to pursue God and to serve each other, instead of a time to just grumble and complain and look out for ourselves, we will shine. We will be the people God wants us to be. His kingdom workers. And we do so holding fast to the truth. What is this truth? Verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It will not always be like that. What is the truth? Someday we will stand with him when every knee is bowing and every tongue is is confessing. We will be found to be without blemish. People will know. God knows. We will stand with Christ. We can do this temporary hard thing because we can stand forever with Christ in glory. At the very beginning of, of the war, of the Revolutionary War, Thomas Paine wrote, Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. We have a glorious triumph waiting for us. When our king returns, it will be amazing. And all of these passing injustices and unfairnesses and stinky things will be meaningless and nothing. What will matter is that we stand with Christ. But unlike the revolutionaries, we know who wins the war. It's already been determined. Death and his cohorts are doomed. They're dead. They're done. 
Christ wins. And if we choose to stand with him now, we will stand with him for eternity. Let's pray. God, I am amazed by your love. I am amazed by your compassion. I am amazed by your glory. Thank you for standing for us, for loving us, for setting us free. Please help us to stand with you because we cannot do it of our own power, of our own energy, of our own desire. We need you. All-powerful creator, we need you. Amen. <laughs>